My text for today is Revelation chapter 6, although I will not get to it for a few minutes. I'm going to have you turn to a couple of other places before I get there. So starting in Revelation chapter 1. So if you want to turn someplace in your Bibles, you can find Revelation 1. I told Elizabeth that I was going to be referring to a number of scriptures today and that she didn't need to try and find them all on the screen while I'm talking about them. She's very good about doing that, and I'm amazed at how quickly she can find them sometimes. But I think it's good for us to uh, see in our own Bibles a number of the things that I'm going to be pointing out for you today. So don't just depend on the screen. I'll have to be turning to these things myself, and so there will be time for you to turn to many of the scriptures that I reference. I'm going to start off with uh, something like a a plea for, for patient toleration. Uh, there's an old saying that says, in essentials, let us have unity. In non-essentials, let us have liberty. And in all things, let us have love. Or charity, if you want to keep the, the euphony going on. So, in essentials, let us have unity. In non-essentials, let us have liberty, and in all things, let us have charity. I'm curious if there's anybody in here besides Noah Presley who consistently watches professional soccer. Is there anybody? So I I think uh, Noah's a big soccer fan. Uh, I'm just curious if there's anybody in here who's in the same position as I am that I cannot name one professional soccer team. Well, I, I guess if Louisville counts, I might be able to name Louisville. But uh, the, the really great soccer teams uh, around the world, I, I don't know any of them. If you get into a fuss about soccer and who's the greatest team, I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm not going to get offended and take my, my ball and go home because you have, you've taken a position on who's the greatest soccer team in the world. Now, honestly, folks, that's the way many of us are with the book of Revelation. Honestly, we, just, we don't know what it means. And uh, we've heard, there's one perspective on Revelation that we've heard a lot, and, and we know people that we love who had that perspective on Revelation, but if, if we believe it, it's almost certainly because somebody else told us about it. And not because we figured it out by reading the book of Revelation. I know this from personal experience. I've been reading the Bible for, uh, for 50 years. And probably read the book of Revelation at least once a year for 50 years. And then when uh, a member of this church challenged me to pre- th- preach through the book of Revelation, then I thought, well, I'm going to get down to serious business with the book of Revelation. I'm going to memorize the whole book. And so I did. I I usually don't mention stuff that I've memorized, but I've memorized other books of the Bible. And I'll tell you, Revelation is the hardest book of the Bible that I've ever memorized. Because most of the time, I didn't know what was going on. And it's hard to memorize things that you can't make sense of. You would have the same problem if you tried to memorize the book of Proverbs, especially from chapters uh, 10 on. First nine chapters have kind of a a coherent flow, flow, but starting with chapter 10, it's just scattered Proverbs. I had some of the same problem when I memorized the book of James years ago. It's not always easy to follow the, 
the line of thought in the book of James. Uh, other books of the Bible, easy. You know, it's just, I mean, it takes time, but it's easy in comparison to Revelation. But here's what I thought I was going to do. I said, I'm just going to memorize the book of Revelation. And uh, so for the past uh, three years, I've, I've spent probably an hour a day working on memorizing the book of Revelation. And I said, I'm, I'm going to do my best to not read any books on the interpretation of Revelation. And at the end of it, I'm going to see if there is one, uh, if there's a perspective or if there's an interpretation that just becomes glaringly apparent to me. And I have to confess to you that at the end of reading the book of Revelation, there was not one approach that appeared glaringly apparent to me. Now, I have in recent months taken a position, and I told you about that last week, and I'm getting ready to tell you again. I'm going to review a couple of the things that I went over last week, because if you're like me, you need to hear them about a half dozen times before you remember them. And so this is pretty important. And uh, so uh, before I get into the four basic approaches to the book of Revelation, let me just say, if, if you're on the book of Revelation like I was for many years, sort of like soccer, you know, if you guys get into a fuss about the book of Revelation, I'm not going to get offended because I just have not had that strong of a view on it. And that's the way that I still am. And so I hope that you will grant the same clemency towards me so that you, if you end up saying, oh man, I've never heard what Brother Jim is saying. Neither did I. I never heard what Brother Jim is saying uh, several months ago. Well, I'd heard it, but had never really thought it through very thoroughly. I should say that since I, uh, after memorizing the book of Revelation, I recognized that I needed some help from older brothers. And so I have read several books, and I've read books on the various perspectives on the book of Revelation and have finally taken a position that I think is right. But if you feel strongly that another view is right, this is, where, this is a non-essential and we can still be friends. So on essentials, let us have unity. If you disagree about the Trinity, we can't have, we can't have fellowship together. If you disagree about the way of salvation, that's an essential. We, we can't have fellowship. If you believe that you've got to be baptized in order to be saved, you don't belong in this church permanently because we don't believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. If you believe strongly that infants should be baptized, you're going to be unhappy in this church because we're not going to baptize any babies. We just don't believe that it's taught in the Bible. So on essentials, let us have unity. But on something like what I'm preaching now, there are basic spiritual principles that are essentials that are going to come out, like today, that God keeps his threats when he makes them. So that's an essential. We've got to agree that God keeps his word. But exactly when God fulfilled or will fulfill those threats, we can disagree on those things and still love one another and have liberty. And uh, so, but, you know, the Lord has uh, called me to pastor, and uh, I'm, I'm not just entirely happy that I committed to preach through the book of Revelation, but I did it. And so, here we go. Uh, I've, I, I have taken a position, and that's the position that I'm going to preach if if after thinking thoroughly through, you think, well, I disagree with him, I hope that you'll be able to say, well, I, I disagree with him, but I still love him. And uh, 
So you'll be happy to know that I'm not taking it a verse at a time in the way that I have done other books of the Bible. So if you don't like the way I'm handling Revelation, it's going to be over with in about six months, <laughs> God willing. So it, it will be over with. If we go a chapter at a time, taking a break here and there for things like Easter and, and so on, that I, I think that we'll finish up before the year is out. So if you're in pain, it shouldn't be painful for too long. But uh, at least I hope that you will uh, be intrigued by hearing a position that you probably have never heard before. But here are the four basic approaches to the book of Revelation. You remember last week I had my little hourglass up here. And so I don't have it up here today, but if you can just imagine that all the sand is in the bottom of the hourglass, that is one position, and that position is called the preterist view. And, uh, you know, a year ago I don't think I could have told you what a preterist was And now I am one. So I think that the book of Revelation is mostly about the destruction of Jerusalem. There are other truths, but I think it mostly has been fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. And then let's just imagine that we could turn the hourglass upside down and all the sand is in the top part of the hourglass. That's the futurist view. And so that's probably the view that is most popular in our culture, popularized through the Left Behind series, Schofield Reference Bible and, and so on. Now, interestingly, it, it is often the futurists who are most uh, concerned that everyone should be a futurist. I'm not exactly sure why that is. I have, I have some theories on that, but um, it, it seems like if people don't know anything about the Bible at all, they're interested in the book of Revelation, and it's primarily the futurist view of things. How, who is the beast? You know, what does 666 mean? And it's always all these enthralling things that are going to happen in the future. So that's the futurist view. That's probably what most of us grew up hearing, myself included. Then there are two other views that I think are very good. One of them is called the historicist view. So if you can imagine that the sand is partly in the top and partly in the bottom, that's the historicist view that says the book of Revelation talks about real, identifiable, historical events that have taken place throughout history and will continue to take place throughout history. So I gave you the example of like in, in uh, I think it's chapter 14, when uh, an angel opens the shaft of the bottomless pit and out of the shaft of the bottomless pit come locusts and uh, they have tails like scorpions and so on that historists would say that refers to a specific historical event, the invasion of the Muslim hordes into Europe and Asia. And so that's the historicist position, and wonderful people hold to all four positions. So, but then the, other, the fourth position is the idealist position, and again it would be represented by an hourglass that has sand in the top and sand in the bottom. The idealist position is that Uh, There are seven presentations of the same story in the book of Revelation. And it starts with the birth of Jesus and ends with his coming back. And through, through each of those seven stories, you see various things that happen. But it's, it's telling the same story over and over again. And they are spiritual principles that are not limited to one historic era, but they are spiritual principles that are relevant for everyone. So I, I like that. That's, that's probably my second choice for what I would be if, if I hadn't embraced the, 
the preterist view, that most, mo- the view that most of this has already been fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, a great thing about the idealist view is that it, it lays down spiritual principles that are obviously relevant for all of us. Now, I think that also the other views do as well. I think it's also important for us to remember this, which I pointed out last week. It's possible to have any one of these four views and still believe the basic essentials about Jesus coming back at the end of the world. So when you hear my view, then someone might say, well, well, don't you think Jesus is coming back? Yes, I do. We believe historicists, idealists, preterists, futurists, we all believe that Jesus is coming back. He's going to come back personally. He's going to come back in glory. The dead are going to be raised. Those who are born again will go be with the Lord Jesus. Those who are not born again will be separated from him forever. And there may be disagreement about how many judgments there's going to be and how long it will be before Jesus coming back and the judgment and so on. There's, there, there's definitely disagreement about those things. But the essence of the matter is we all believe, all four positions believe, Jesus is going to come back personally. He's going to come back in glory. And there's incentive uh, in us being ready for him to come back. So uh, whichever, whichever position you embrace, I, I trust that you do hold to the essentials that Jesus is coming back. Now, I think it's helpful to remember a couple of the guiding principles that the book of Revelation itself gives us. So, do you have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 1? I don't. So, uh, if you need to turn there, look at Revelation chapter 1. And uh, one of the guiding principles is laid down in the first chapter and in the last chapter. In Revelation 1.1, the very first verse, it says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him..." to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, that influenced me very much. The things that are described in the book of Revelation are things that must soon take place. Now, I know that in God's eyes, a thousand years are like one day. But in human eyes, a thousand thousand years or two thousand years or three thousand years in the future does not qualify for soon take place. If the book of Revelation says these things soon take place, then I think that we should, as much as we can, let's see if we can find whether or not they did soon take place. Then look at verse 3. So, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So, there in the first three verses, you have two statements. This is about to happen. It's soon. It's near. And then turn to the very last book, the very last chapter, chapter 22, and we'll see once again that uh, this is mentioned twice. So in Revelation 22 and verse 6, it says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And then look in verse 12 of the same chapter. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And there are several other places in the book of Revelation. We saw in the letters to the seven churches where the Lord comforts those who are being persecuted, and he tells them, hold on to what you have. I am coming soon. And so 
last week, we spent the entire time looking at one presentation, one of the gospel presentations of the Olivet Discourse. So, in the Olivet Discourse, it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not in John? No, not in John. Why not in John? Well, John had written the book of Revelation. So, there's no, no need to put the Olivet Discourse down. The book of Revelation is the, is the prediction of what Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse. So, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have the Olivet Discourse, which I, I, I think is a foundation for the book of Revelation. And there the disciples uh, say, wow, look at these beautiful buildings of the temple. And Jesus says, you see these buildings? There will not be one stone left on another. In all my reading, I haven't encountered what I heard once from a preacher, but this makes sense. But I haven't read it anywhere. The reason there was not even one stone left on another is because the Romans, when they destroyed the temple, set fire to it. And there was a lot of gold in the temple. And so in the process of that fire, the gold would filter down and get between the cracks of the stones. And so to get, the, to get every last piece of gold that they never left, even one stone left on top of another. I heard that from Adrian Rogers. So uh, he's a pretty trustworthy guy. I, he probably read that somewhere. But I, never, I haven't read it in any books, but that does make sense. Speaking of gold, it is kind of sad, the you, you can read a lot about what happened in, in the destruction of Jerusalem in a history book called uh, The Works of Josephus. And he has a considerable portion of his works that is devoted to the war that took place from 67 A.D. to 70 A.D. when the Romans, uh, first of all, uh, attacked Israel from the north and people from the north were gathering and Jerusalem is the safest city in the land of Palestine. And they also crammed in there because it was Passover. Now some of the Christians had already gotten out and they escaped to a town called Pella because the Lord had warned them, when you see these armies coming, when you see the desolation, the abomination that causes desolation, trampling the holy city underfoot, then escape. Don't let the one on the mountain on the housetop, even take the time to go down and get his coat. And as I pointed out last week, all of that doesn't make sense if you're talking about the enormous cataclysm that is going to happen at the end of the age when the Lord is going to come back with, with firing fury and going to destroy everything. It, does, it doesn't matter if you left your coat in the basement, if there's an atomic bomb going off on your block. And so when Jesus says, look, when you see these things start to happen, then know that the time is near. When you see uh, Jerusalem being trampled underfoot, then you, you, you followers of mine, get out of the city because then is going to come a time of tribulation such as there has never been and never will be. And we thought, never will be? How can, how can he say that? I mean, in, in the last hundred years, we've seen the Holocaust and the ill treatment of Jews throughout the centuries. How could Jesus say such as there will never be? Well, if you read the book, the, the history of Josephus, the history of the Jewish wars, you'll find such, such things as these. During the siege of Jerusalem, there were people who would try to escape, and they would try to escape to uh, neighboring, neighboring peoples and get through the, the Roman uh, siege. And in order to try to get wealth out, they would swallow things that were valuable. So they would swallow gold or they would swallow jewels. And Josephus says, 
when that became known, then the Jews who were escaping were all killed and cut up, and then they searched their stomach and intestines to see if there was any gold or any jewels in them. And Josephus lists the number of people who were killed in one night because they were thought to be uh, ha- have swallowed precious things. Oh, it is harrowing to read in the works of Josephus what happened during the siege of Jerusalem. And after reading what happened, then you have a you say, well, Jesus was not speaking hyperbolically when he said that there would be a time of trial such as had never been. And but it, uh, thank God it was cut short, shut, cut short for the elect's sake. So. We're getting closer to my text, uh, Revelation chapter 6, but while you're turning to Revelation chapter 6, let me remind you of something else that we saw last week. After saying all of these things that sound like the the end of the world, Jesus says all of this is going to take place in in the lifetime of this generation. And a generation is 35 to 40 years. So Jesus is speaking, you know, around the year A.D. 30. Uh, you say, well, Jesus was about 33. Yeah, Jesus was probably born about 4 B.C. There's a little bit of chronology that is messed up. And so Jesus was probably crucified in about the year uh, uh, 30. And so just before he's crucified, he says, this is going to take place. There's some standing here who will not die until they see the kingdom of God come. There's some who are standing here who will not die until they see all of these things take place. That's pretty powerful that Jesus talks about these things and says it's going to happen in the next 35 to 40 years. But it did. And uh, so that has influenced me very deeply to embrace the position that will be reflected now as I go through the book of Revelation. I'll probably remind you of, of that again, probably not next week, but again, because we need to hear those things uh, several times before we understand them. And uh, so. To give you big picture of what I think unfolds in the book of Revelation, I think that God is bringing about what He threatened in Leviticus chapter 26. So that's what we read for our scripture readings today. When the people of Israel walked with Him, then He blessed them, and and they were they were just magnificently blessed. He fulfilled those promises, but when they turned away from Him, then He fulfilled those threats, and. Uh, one of the things that will arise in, in the minds of you who are futurists or have been exposed to the futurist view is that an essential part of the futurist view seems to be that God has maintained two separate peoples, that there is the people of Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, and then there are Christians, what many people have called the church, and that there are two peoples of God. And uh, I, I've have been disappointed to hear uh, people that I think essentially understood the gospel, someone like Billy Graham, when pressed about what about the Jews, saying such things as, well, I think God has a special arrangement with the Jews. I disagree with uh, Billy Graham about that. I disagree with the perspective that God has two separate peoples. I think that the physical descendants of Abraham were the blessed covenant people, that they were blessed with the Word of God, that they were blessed with the temple and the worship of God. But Jesus said, you are like a fig tree that is not bearing fruit. I curse you, and I'm going to give the kingdom into the hands of a people who will bring forth the fruit of the kingdom. 
And uh, so he also told the story of uh, the, 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 the farmer who planted a vineyard, put a tower and a wine press in the vineyard. He rented it out, and uh, those people who rented out the vineyard uh, were supposed to give the owner part of the profits from the vineyard. But when he sent someone to get the profits from the vineyard, then they treated him shamefully. They beat him up. And so the owner of the vineyard sent someone else, and they treated him shamefully and beat him up. And then finally, the owner of the vineyard said, I'll send my son, perhaps they will respect him. And when they saw the son, they said, oh, this is the heir, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they killed the son. And then Jesus asked the question, now what's going to happen to these, these people who had rented the vineyard? And the Pharisees answered, the owner of the vineyard will, will cast them out of the vineyard and kill them and give the vineyard to someone who will bring forth the fruits. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. So before I continue with the story, the vineyard represents God's blessings to Israel, but Israel used it selfishly. When God sent prophets to correct them, they mistreated the prophets, killed them and mistreated them. And then finally, God sent His Son, and what did they do to Jesus? They killed Him. And so Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Have you never read that the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? He's referring to Himself. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then He says, uh, the all, I'm not sure if this is sequential, but He says, It's impossible for a prophet to die anywhere outside of Jerusalem. So that's why I'm going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who have killed the prophets, how often I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. But now your house is left to you desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. In another place, Jesus says, The blood of all of the prophets that have been shed from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament are going to be held against this generation. This generation that was alive during the time of Jesus was so wicked that uh, Jesus said, uh, you, you build the tombs for the prophets, and you say, well, if we'd been alive, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. But by the fact of the way you're living, you're showing that you would have killed the prophets if you were alive at that time. And so you're going to be punished most severely. When Jesus was on his way to be crucified, there were women who were following after him. And uh, Jesus turned and said to them, daughters, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. If they do this kind of thing when the tree is green, what are they going to do when the tree is dry Weep for yourselves and for your children. Uh, Why? Because you are going to be alive at the time that these terrible things take place. Now, I've just been having so much fun with all of that. The time has gotten away from me. And so let's see how far we can get in Revelation chapter 6. I I don't intend to uh, preach long. Obviously, I've taken up all my time with an introduction. But my, it was just such a fun introduction. And uh, so important, really. So that I hope that on the other side of this, you don't think that I'm an absolute kook. So, uh, when we were in Revelation chapter 5, I asked the question, what does the scroll represent? The scroll that is written on the front and behind. And I gave the answer, 
that the scroll is the, the administration of God's kingdom that is handed over to Jesus Christ. He is the one who is qualified to do this, and that this scroll contained in it the, the right to administer justice, and that would be both punitive justice and the justice of reward. So now we begin to see the, the potential for the punitive justice that is going to be unleashed on Jerusalem. Jerusalem <coughs> is uh, kind of the focal point of the Old Covenant worship, and uh, Israel has been described throughout the Old Testament as God's wife. So I'm not going to have you turn to those passages of Scripture, but several times Israel is referred to as God's wife. One book that I read identifies the scroll as God's certificate of divorce against Israel. He is divorcing Israel. That fits into the more general identification that I have given. Jesus is going to administer God's kingdom, but that does entail a severance from Israel as the wife and a new wife is coming, and that new wife is the bride. So, uh, it may surprise you to learn that I believe that the harlot in the book of Revelation is the city of Jerusalem. The harlot is the city of Jerusalem. I think that Babylon in the book of Revelation is a metaphorical name for the city of Jerusalem. And the old city is divorced and destroyed, and then John sees a new city coming down of heaven from God, the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so I think that the book of Revelation is a, a great drama showing how that God divorced and stoned, divorced and stoned his first wife. Why? Because she committed adultery. So adulterers under the old covenant were not just set aside and divorced, adulterers were stoned. And so I I think that, that explains metaphorically and to some degree literally what happens when we read later in the book of Revelation that there are great stones, 100 pound, hailstones, 100 pounds each that come down on the people and people curse God for the plague of the hail because it was so severe. What's happening? They're getting stoned. The city is getting stoned. Now, on a literal level, the, the Romans had catapults that would throw these great enormous stones that weighed 100 pounds and I'll say more about that when I, when I get to it. But the big storyline of Revelation is that the old wife of Israel is being divorced and stoned, and the new wife of the new Jerusalem, the new wife, the holy city New Jerusalem, is coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This same story is also uh, pictorially represented in the book of Revelation as the destruction of an old world and the creation of a new world. And so we'll see that even in this passage of Scripture uh, when, when we eventually get to it. And uh, so at, at this time, I'm just going to have to make a, an executive decision. It's, five, it's four minutes till 12, and I don't want to just rush through this. I don't plan to preach this next Sunday because it's Easter Sunday, and we should have a lot of visitors. I want to preach a, a message about the resurrection of Jesus but uh, what I have said today is extremely important for what is coming, and it needed to be said. I didn't mean to take up the whole time with an introduction, but uh, I'm not sorry that I did because I think all of this is, is very important and will help us in the weeks to come as we make our way through the book of Revelation. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a hymn of conclusion. <clears throat> 